now that we're friends Here is an album you would like Here is a book you would like I think you'd like my cat and also my dog Because we're friends Now that we're friends Now that we're friends Now that we're friends Now that we're friends Now we're recording now we're recording. Hello and welcome to Now That We're Friends, the podcast that takes your life questions and gives you homework. How are you guys today? Great. Doing pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> um, How are you, Caroline? Um, I just received a – so my, my brother and his wife have a one-year-old and a five-year-old and everyone is sick except the five-year-old, which – they're not saying this, but I think it would be easier if he was sick too. Like he's got tons of energy and is feeling fine, but everyone else is like laid out, which makes it a little harder. But um, my brother just sent me a text that said, Simone, who's the one-year-old, Simone threw up in her bed and it dried on her head. Just <laughs> <laughs> so gross. That is so gross. But then they're good parents. So in the moments before they cleaned her up, they also took a picture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and she <laughs> – she has the biggest eyes always, but she just looks like sad and sweet and gross. And it's the funniest picture. Aww. It's so good. So that's what's consuming my thoughts right now. <laughs> she didn't get it in her eyes, did she? I think she was probably fully asleep when it happened. Sure. Her eyes don't appear irritated or anything. Okay. But That's my fear. I mean, it happened to me when I was a kid and it's like the one thing that I remember of being a kid. Maybe not the one you thing. You vomited in your eyes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I've told you this story like a thousand times. I was laying in bed and was really sick and was so tired and weak I couldn't get up. And so I just laid in a pool of my vomit. <laughs> and it got in, and it like got in my eye. It was awful. The disdain in your voice, Anne, when you went, you vomited in your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god, so funny. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> it was the truest reaction though. Yeah. Are you an alien? I am an alien. <laughs> but yeah, and I I remember like just it, like it hurt so cuz I just like laid in there for a while and the I mean it's it's acid and it just like eats away at your eye and this doesn't have to actually be Ugh. in the recording. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I'm but like I remember like my mom putting me under the bathtub, putting my eye under the faucet and rinsing all of it out. And it hurt so bad. Oh, poor baby that girl. Terrible. It wasn't great. So that's what's up in my life right now. How about you guys? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a entirely empty house, if you can tell, by the acoustics in here. Yeah. <laughs> The sun will come out. It's very good. <laughs> I Everything has been taken away from my house and I'm leaving in three days. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And it's like I'm, I'm in this thing where like I have all these things I need to do, but everything I need to do can't be done yet. But like in order to do all the things I need to do, I need more time. But so, but like everything, I'm like, oh, I need to do this, this, and this. And then I'm like, well, but that can't be done until – the day before I leave, or that can't be done until the morning I leave. But then I can't do all of those things the day before the morning I leave because then I will be late. And it's yeah. that horrible timeline. It's just the worst. Yeah. I remember you wrote once a poem when we were in Dara Wire's class our last semester in grad school, and it had the line, 
a schedule is a moving thing you can be behind or ahead yeah. of or something like that. That's uh, the Milky Way one. Yeah, yes. I one. love that line, but I feel like that line is fucking with you this it week. It sure is. <laughs> it's a thing, a moving thing that I can be behind or ahead of. I can never actually be on it. <laughs> um, I'm about to move to the middle of nowhere, comma, Georgia, and I'll be living on a small mountain. Where I will How not small? very well. I mean, pretty small. I mean, it's a mountain, I think, or a big hill. <laughs> but uh, what is it? A mountain needs to be like a thousand feet or something to be a mountain. What are the? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a geologist, Anne. But yeah, me neither, Anne. I will Google. Oh well, <laughs> I am. So well, then maybe you I'll should Google have. I've been, I've been quietly getting my geology degree <laughs> this whole time. Boom. And just sits in the mirror and goes, I fucking love rocks. <laughs> Geology rocks. You know me. Yes. It surely does. Yeah, I don't know. But I do know that it is a high up place. And I will have neither regular wired internet nor a mail service come to my house. Which is terrifying. Wait, so why why doesn't the mail come to you? Be- because it's out in the country. Yeah, but like the USPS is required to deliver to ever to any address. But it's not an address yet. Wait, you're what do you mean? Your address is not an address? If you type my address into anything, um, like if you type it into Google Maps, it will take you to my it won't actually even take you to my house. It'll take you to the bottom of the mountain. Then if you type my address into Amazon or USPS or anything, it's not a valid mailing address. That is wild. Well, I mean, it's I mean, my grandmother didn't have a mailing address for the first like 20 years they had their house because it was so out in the country. She had a P.O. box. So I want to tell you guys about mountains because it's more <laughs> complex than we thought. <laughs> I'm ready. So when I look up mountain on Wikipedia, <laughs> under the section definition – the first sentence is, there is no universally accepted definition of a mountain. Yeah, Anne. Elevation, <laughs> volume. <What? laughs> Guess you better study geology a little harder, Anne. It came, it came from some movie that I saw. It was like the man who walked up a hill and came down a mountain or something like that. Wow. And I remember that there was some – anyway, it doesn't matter. So it is different – so the, the thing is that there are – regionally specific definitions of what a mountain is. For example, in the UK and in Ireland, a mountain is usually defined as any summit at least 2,000 feet high. And then the UN has some requirements that are more specific where it's like at least 2,500 meters or at least 1,500 meters with a slope of greater than two degrees or like, so it takes in other things into account. Yeah. There are various definitions of mountains having to do with elevation, slope, et cetera. Hmm. So the movie I was thinking of was The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill But Came Down a Mountain, and it starred Hugh Grant, and it came Ooh. out in 1995. And it had to do with this small Welsh town yep. that Wales. relied on its mountain. They were really proud of it, but then these cartographers come into town, and they measure the mountain, and they find that it's just under whatever the official mountain classification is. In the UK, it's 2000, what did I say? 2000, yeah, 2000 feet. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and it 
Well, I looked more, up, you know. it says the USPS just won't deliver mail to certain houses. There are some areas where the USPS will not deliver to individual addresses at all. <laughs> so we're learning all sorts of things. <laughs> I mean, I believed you. I was just incredulous that, <laughs> well, that I mean, you could move into a... I mean, I, I understand. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but you just said, aren't they required? And I was looking it up if it was required. Yeah, that's just wild to me. Yeah. Wild country out there, Gail. Yeah, it is. It, I remember like my grandma, I think my grandmother got like the mail delivered to her house and 911 access like in the same thing because she finally got an address. That's important. Yeah. That does seem important. Oh my God, Gail. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll never see you guys again is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Thank God for this podcast because otherwise, yeah. well, I don't know. I'm gonna have friendship would have to end. I'm gonna have terrible satellite internet, so we may, you know, the connection may not be great. <laughs> All right, this might be the last time we yeah. record, guys. So I'll see you later. It's been swell. Yeah. Anyway, it's gonna be fine. It's normal for a lot of people, so I'm just gonna be normal. Great. <laughs> That's a great tagline. <laughs> and I think if I just keep telling myself out loud, like murmur to myself, I'm just going to be be normal, Gail. Just be normal. Be normal. <laughs> Gail, it's going to be normal, Thompson. Then I think people won't be scared at all. So yeah, I'm I'm moving. It's going to be great. Yes. And it's weird. Cool, but weird. It's cool, but weird. <laughs> uh, how's everyone else doing? I'm excited to be sitting in my office that is now pretty complete and I have this nice window that looks out on our backyard and I'm just very pleased to have my own space and to be surrounded by books and to have a door I can close. It's really pleasant. And I'm so pleased you're pleased. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's just nice even to have like my own desk, which I haven't had in a while. Yeah. That's wonderful. We have this tree that I recently found out from my mother-in-law is a catalpa tree. Ooh. That is just beautiful. And then it has these like long beanish protrusions, <laughs> which doesn't sound pretty as I <laughs> describe it. Sounds it. great. <laughs> but it's like, a, it's like, it looks like a bean tree. Yeah. And it's enormous. And it's just like really pretty and green and... It's right behind a dogwood tree that's also in our backyard. It's just nice to be able to look out on these nice trees. And there's all these birds. There's all these cardinals that I'm seeing right now. It's lovely. It is lovely. Wildlife, trees, etc. made me think that, well, because Lisanne and I live in the tropics, our wildlife is really weird. And the other day I was getting into my car or I was putting something in the passenger side of my car and I felt something smack my wrist and oh looked really quickly, and a baby iguana had fallen out of a tree. <laughs> oh my God. And its, it's tail smacked my arm on the way down, and then it like hit the ground and skittered away into the plants. I'm glad that I didn't realize what would happen had happened till after the fact because it didn't really scare or creep me out at all. Because by the time I processed it, it was gone. But yeah, iguana just fell on me the other day. <laughs> That's amazing. That sounds like Florida a is dream. wild. Yeah, Florida is wild. A dream? Yeah. Like a bad dream. No. Like- Not like, oh, God, that's the dream. <laughs> it is the dream. I want an iguana. Gross. I hate reptiles. I mean, they're not great. Sorry. But they're not, you know, they're 
When it iguanas yeah. are cute. And I'm trying to figure out why. And I think maybe it's because of that show Under the Umbrella Tree. Oh, I love that show. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind. Uh, reptiles, birds, all non-mammal animals, I just like to observe from a distance. I don't yeah. have anything like malicious against them. I just find them a little creepy. No, I, I understand that. I like amphibians, actually. I think frogs are super cute. They're too quick and jumpy. Mm. You know, like I don't, I like things that can, that generally stay in one place. I don't like things that like one second they could be three feet away from you and the other second they can be on your face. I generally agree with you, except that I think it would be an honor to be killed by a mountain lion. (laughs) (laughs) Because again, I just have this like mammal affinity I can't shake. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I'm pretty sure as you're being attacked by the mountain lion, you're not going to be like, oh, man, I love mammals. <laughs> yeah, I love that you're romanticizing your grisly death. <laughs> I No, I, so this is something maybe I imagine we've talked about this before because I think about it a lot. When I was living in Colorado and people, there are like certain trails oh, you would yeah. go to, people would be like, beware, mountain lions. And I really just think a mountain lion would kill you so instantly that like it could be the best way to go, yeah. you know. Aside from peaceful death. Also, like, mountain lions are few and far between these days. So, if anything, you'd be like, oh, my God, it's a mountain lion. There's not very many of these anymore. Yeah. It's like thank God rare- it's thriving. Yeah. It's driving? Thriving. 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 <laughs> I was like, what, what if mountain lions could drive? It's driving by. Oh, my God. Well, guys, I think this is a good segue. I think you're right. Question. Yeah. You're so right. (laughs) All right. So, yeah, I'll go ahead and play the question. And our question today is sponsored by (laughs) Gabrielle. (laughs) We should make up sponsors. That would be great. All right. Hold on. This is Gabrielle. So, now that we're friends, I can be completely honest. I have a pet duck named Donald. And Donald has been missing for a week now. And I'm so distraught and I don't know what to do. Um, He was a wild duck when I found him. So I understand like if he went away and had to explore and stuff like that. But now I feel like I'm missing something in my life. So am I using this duck to fill a void or... Do animals really just help us as people? Should I get another animal? God, I feel this question so hard. Yeah, seriously. This is my favorite question. I love everything about it, but most of all, I love the phrase, he was a wild duck when I met him. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. My Wild ducks can't be broken. Oh, God. It's true. (laughs) The document that I wrote on the title of the file, the file name, I guess, is the better way to to talk about it. The file name of this is, oh no, her duck is gone. (laughs) Should we talk about the question a little first? Yes. Yes. Um, No, Gail, you go. Well, you you did your intake. No, no one did any sound except you, I think. I heard a Caroline, like, (gasps) you know, you're breathing in. Oh, well- I could have just been breathing. Oh. <laughs> That's something I will. I'll sometimes take d- deep breaths 
And Phil, my yeah. husband, will be like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I'm like, I am literally just fucking sitting here trying to breathe. Get off my back. <laughs> I'm always really aware. Like, anyway. You're very intake. Like you intake before you say something. I mean, like a person does. And then like you'll do it and then won't say something. And I'll be like, oh, God, what's she going to say? And then I like wait for it. And Fine, Gail. I had <laughs> – I admit it, Gail. I had breathed in. I was going to say something, <laughs> but I want you to go first. <laughs> the truth comes out. <laughs> I just, the thing that I love about this is that like, and I don't know if any other, I assume it's a childhood thing, but my childhood things tend to not go away from me as an adult. In fact, they might have come back stronger, but I was really just obsessed with this idea. And I think it was just because like we were kids of the late 80s and 90s and like there was SeaWorld. There were things that like that fa- – there was free – I think that's Free Willy is what I'm really thinking of. Mm-hmm. Of this like all I ever wanted to do was to have a wild thing but have it still be wild but to also live with me. Yeah. Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah. Or like – Free Willy. When I was – eight, I tried to make a river in the backyard of my house. I like dug in this big gouge and just ran a hose through it for like hours. I would do this all summer. And I don't know why my parents didn't murder me because all I did was literally run the hose for hours in the backyard trying to make a river. I would like try to make ponds in the backyard and like try to put in little pools so that one day we could put fish in them. And like all I ever, like I wanted to have this like created thing that was like somewhat wild, but then still also really near me. And it's like Audrey Hepburn with the deer where it's like, it's a wild thing. It's doing its own thing, but also you get to be right there with it. Do you know? It's all I ever Mm -hmm. wanted was that. Yeah. It makes me kind of think about how, and we can talk about being like dog people, cat people, duck people, whatever. But I think typically (laughs) like something that cat people will say is that it's kind of easy to make a dog love you, but cats kind of make you work for it or you feel like you've earned something from a cat. And I think wild animals even more so. It's like it says something really great about you if this wild thing like trusts you and wants to be near you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also with this question went immediately to like the stories and movies from my childhood and got very emotional about this question. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's a really emotional question because anyone who's ever loved and lost a pet, which is 100% of pet owners. Yeah. Unless they get killed. It is so sad. Sorry. That's true. (laughs) Maybe that's what I want. Maybe I want to die before the cat dies. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But so I think it is a really universally sad, difficult thing. And I know there's that podcast, The Purrcast, and they end up talking about mortality on it so much because a lot of times, well, really, if you're lucky, you as a kid maybe lose a pet before you lose a person that you love. Mm -hmm. And so like you're learning about mortality and grief through loss of pets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also think Gabrielle's doing just fine because I think the question of like, I think if you are self-aware enough to ask am I putting too much emotion into this? Like, am I placing too much importance on this relationship? You're probably not. You know, I think you're you're self-aware enough that like you're doing just fine yeah. and it's okay to miss your animal. When I mean, play, the, yeah. the only problem with placing too much, I mean, not the only problem. There are other problems. You can't place importance on like heroin or things like that, you know, things that are actually unhealthy. But like placing 
importance on something is really just about like showing vulnerability and being vulnerable. And the thing about making this relationship with the duck is that is knowing that like, well, the duck was wild when you met it. And there's like a clear possibility that the duck could go wild again or get eaten by a eagle. I don't know, a wild <laughs> otter. <laughs> sure. <laughs> But you know, like there's the only problem with putting too much importance or emotion in it is knowing that it's not always either reciprocated or going to be like super positive. Yeah, that it's fleeting from the get go. Yeah. Humans should put importance on a lot of things. Like there doesn't have to be a net zero. Like it's okay to love things at a loss. You know what I mean? Yeah. I also found her question interesting. Like, am I using this duck to fill a void or the animals help us as people? And I think I say yes to both. Yeah. And I think that that's okay. Fill all the voids. The animals do fill a void and it's often an important void. Yeah. That relationship isn't a frivolous thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think when you were talking about the risks of loving something that's wild, it made me think about When I lived in Denver, I lived across the street from this guy, Lyle, who had, I don't know, so many kids. His house was like a clown car of children. And they had this cat named Divine who was an outdoor cat and she would come – she was the best. She like ran the neighborhood. She would come to my porch and like sit and like – she was so cute and little and she'd be very sweet with me. And then the the second my cat would stick his head into the window, she'd like hiss at him and kind of put him in his place even though, you know – it was his place. <laughs> yeah. And then I would watch dog owners come down the street, see that Divine was on the sidewalk and cross the road to avoid her because she was so like aggressive with the dogs and not attacking them or anything, but just kind of like hissing, keeping them away. And I said something to Lyle once. I was like, gosh, she's so funny. Like she's so little and dainty, but she's like fierce. And he said that she had been an indoor cat. And when his oldest daughter was 12, she did – a science fair project. And her science fair project was, can you transition a cat from being an indoor cat to an outdoor cat? And like recording the changes and recording. And I said to him, yeah, I said, Lyle, that could have gone really wrong. Yeah, You know, like your 12 year old could have let the cat out and like the cat could have ended up like eaten by a coyote because we did have coyotes in the city of Denver. You know, like you could have a very any number of things yeah. could have happened when you and he's like, Yeah, I know, worked out really well. <laughs> it was just the funniest thing to me. That is yeah, that funny. the cat like chose to stick around at all. It's a miracle. Oh, and she would they had dogs too, and she didn't like other dogs, she liked her dogs. The kids would come out, get the dogs on the leash, and Divine would hop up on the fence, walk along with them as far as she could along the fence, and then hop down and walk with her kids and dogs on Aww. a walk. It, she was the coolest cat. I love that cat. I want to be clear. I have my dog's head in my lap right now. Perfect. <laughs> because I don't have any furniture and he – and like so we're both sitting on my air mattress and he is asleep and stretched out and his head is in my lap. Aww. That's it. I mean like so with dogs, I mean I guess especially with Hubble, he's kind of a nervous dog. So with metal objects, you really have to earn his trust. But if you're a person, he's kind of okay. <laughs> but – To me, like, and I'm an animal person. I'm an anything that moves person that isn't a snake. I have a cat and a dog. I had a fish until a few days ago. RIP, Niles Crane. (laughs) And to me, the dog, it's like not necessarily that like it's easy for them to love you, but it's like getting married or family where it's just like you get a dog 
And odds are, which is what, you know, evolutionarily, this is what dogs do, is like all of a sudden you have a partner. And Mm -hmm. no matter what, that dog is going to protect you. And there's just like that bond that's there that's like, you are there to protect the dog. You're there, you know, like it's if you, you know, you need to like get up and walk the dog. You have to do things for the dog. And like for me, like I, all I want to do is like take care of something as a kid and now. And I hated being without a pet. All I ever want to do is just take care of animals. Mm-hmm. Hubble or any dog, it's like their job is to love you and protect you. And so it's deciding, like when you get married, deciding that like, okay, now we have each other's back no matter what. That's it. And that's what happened. And so it's like not necessarily that it's easy, but that it's a, a, like this like unconditional decision that's like, cool, now I'm a part of you and now I'm going to do what I can do to make you feel nice and good and safe. And I think animals do that. Like I think I think even trees do that to each other. It's like a weird symbiotic na- na- natural relationship. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've been in Michigan too long. Natural. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine – all of us are feeling that sentiment pretty heavily with this question too. I mean, animals do. They give us comfort and we give them comfort. And yeah, that relationship I think is often much more powerful than than people do give it credit for. Yeah. I just know people often say that like having a dog is so easy or that it's like Karen was saying, like it's that's such a saying where it's like you don't have to work that hard for a dog to love you. And it's that may be true, but you don't have to work hard for your family to love you or for you to love your family. It's kind right. of part of the contract. And I think I really – I love that idea of being so loyal and being there for the personhood of that person and not whether they're – you know, whatever they're doing. It's just like that's my job. That's my lot in life is that I'm going to be with this thing or with this person. And like I like that a lot. Right, Hubble? He's a good boy. <laughs> my brother has multiple cats and when his – favorite cat died very prematurely and unexpectedly and kind of traumatically, my brother kept having to leave work to go cry in the car mm-hmm. and for several days, you know, because he's a sensitive <laughs> he's a sensitive boy. It's something that he felt very strongly he had to kind of like hide. Even though we all experience this like deep grief at the loss of a pet, we also feel like other people will think it's silly or like it's not an okay thing to express. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way you would be able to express that like from the loss of a different family member. But I just, Gabrielle, it's okay to feel just so upset. Absolutely. And- yeah. As someone who's just re- recently lost animals, they're just fish, but they made me very sad when they died. Now, Chandler, the fish that I, ha- I had Chandler for th- almost three years. And so he got kind of big and he was like the most friendly one. And he was the one that was like really open to having new fish. And he would always swim up to like wherever a person was, he would swim up to that wall of the tank and like just watch them for a while. And he was really cute. And when he died, I like laughed later, not as soon as I saw he died, but I like got to this point where I was I was like, hold, you know, I had a paper towel and I was holding when I just went, oh, Chandler, <laughs> oh, Chandler. And then I was, and then I would giggle, but I was still crying, but I would like, la- I was like, oh, Chandler. And then I would laugh at myself and then I would say it again and I would laugh at my, like, it was just this like weird moment where I was like, it's stupid. I have had this fit, but I've had this fish for three years and I have put so much of my emotional attachment and energy into this fish 
and I weirdly know so much about this fish and it's just so weird. Like the, the, I mean, I'm even thinking about like a frog that I tried to keep in an aquarium for a few weeks and then he died and got taken away by ants and I was distraught. I mean, I was like seven, but like anything that you put that much emotional attachment to, it's just going to hurt and it sucks. And I mean, having an animal's like taking care of something, it's like having a, almost a child that then has to like, that has to die or go away. And that, that sucks, man. And ducks are yeah. so cute. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. I just, I love ducks because they always act like, I was doing this impression of a sandpiper at the beach. So obviously ducks are not sandpipers, but ducks always act like their arms are behind their backs. And they walk, they like walk like their hands are behind their, like they mean business all the time. Like their hands are behind their backs and they walk. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I, I yes. just, that's what I love about ducks. Lisanne is laughing at me because I'm miming doing it. I'm like oh, trying to picture it. So I have like my hands behind my back. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. It's like they're playful but very regal at the same time. Yeah. And they fall on their faces. Also, their beaks are rounded, which I find a great comfort. Yes. Absolutely. Do we have some recommendations for Gabrielle? Nope. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> My first recommendation is a little bit more on the serious side, and this is actually something that I would recommend to anyone dealing with loss or grief, and it may seem like an outsized thing for a duck, but I don't think it is. But it's something that I read after a major loss in my life and found quite comforting, and it's Carl Sagan's The Varieties of Scientific Experience, A Personal View of the Search for God. It's all about, based on what we know about the universe, how likely is there to be a like God, the creator? And then in p- part of that is looking at how likely there are to be other life-sustaining planets and things like that. It's wonderful for many reasons. I think one is that I appreciate how it gives you a sense of scale. So I'll, I'm just going to read a couple little things while I talk about it. So for example, we live on the third piece of debris from the sun a tiny world of rock and metal with a thin patina, a veneer, of organic matter on the surface, a tiny fraction of which we happen to constitute. And I don't mean to say pointing out the scale of the cosmos makes you realize like how trivial your questions are. It just kind of, it gives you a sense of like the scale of the universe and not in a way that devalues what you're dealing with, but helps you to kind of put it in perspective a little bit. For me, it helped me to really sit with my grief a little more. Mm -hmm. And how much is still based on chance? Like how much is there right now based on chance? And then how much we don't know? We just don't know anything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Sagan's writing is also just freaking beautiful. So like he'll write things like he's writing about the Pleiades a set of young stars that have been born only recently and are still enveloped in their cocoons of interstellar gas and dust. Like, it's just gorgeous writing. It's really comforting in that way. God bless science communicators, man. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. But then he also, like, thinking about that idea of chance while acknowledging the vastness of the universe, he doesn't then turn it on its head and be like, which is why things are so trivial here. Like, he'll write things like, The more we view the earth from the outside, the more we come to see it as an exquisite tiny world, everyone dependent upon everyone else. 
the sooner that general perception will come into being. And that's just potentially helpful for you, Gabrielle, I hope, is just to see that it's okay to feel dependent on this animal. Like nature brought you together somehow and then took him away from you. And it's okay to feel that's kind of shifted or is out of balance because it's okay to be just... It seems to me that in letting yourself become so connected to a wild animal, you were allowing yourself to kind of belong in the world in a certain way. Hmm. And that did open you up for vulnerability and pain. But it was kind of a way of acknowledging the beauty of the world that you even struck up this relationship with Donald. And so I think that Carl Sagan might be comforting to you right now. I love that, Caroline. Yeah, that was beautiful. He also just says like hilarious things. Like one of my favorite is there's this whole question and answer section in the back, which also it's just amazing to see how eloquent he was on his toes because like he gave lectures on this and then they kind of like compressed a bunch of the different Q&As, but his answers are really just like super brilliant. No surprise there. But he'll say things like someone's asking about the Bermuda Triangle and he says, the thing about the ocean is you can sink in it. (laughs) And he's just really, he's funny and personable and it's really a great, great, great book. Yeah. And I think that's what I love about animals is because it, or like even thinking about the earth as like just this giant terrarium that we're all so connected and we just don't think that we are. But even making those different connections with trees or with people or with animals, like, I don't know, it's like we are all on this kind of weird speck of, I don't know, a jar in someone's bathroom. I'm glad you said that. That really clarified something that I think like part of the reason I think this book was important to me when I was dealing with loss and grief is that you know how in a great in a lot of great poems there's like that movement where there's the turn away from and that's something I think we talk about a lot in workshop is like if a poem's like really living in its own world sometimes it needs like to turn away and look at something broader and then come back yeah and I feel like for me reading this book was like a real life version of that where you know grief is kind of all consuming And so using this like turn to something larger as a vehicle through and like not away from grief, but like a vehicle back through and like into understanding your grief in a different way. I think this book did that for me. Yeah. So I have a song that I recommend and it's by Kate Nash. I don't particularly, I mean, not I don't particularly, but I don't think the like the lyrics of this song are incredible, but I think just the premise of it is incredible. And it's called My Little Alien. And it's all just basically how much she loves her dog. I assume, I mean, the video, so the video is just her running around with her dog. That's it. She's got her dog on a leash. He's really cute. And it's just like her running around in fields in a van around a gas station with her dog. There's nothing all that special about the lyrics, but like everything is looking at this dog as if they're like a little alien. I think that's so much of that feeling of wanting to be connected with the outside and with nature and like with the thing that is so different from you, but really isn't all that different from you. And it like gets at that like primal evolutionary need. I think we have, I guess, biological need, maybe it's not evolutionary, but anyway, I love thinking about pets and the things that we love as little aliens. (laughs) Cause it's like, who are you? Where did you come from? But I really love you. (laughs) (laughs) Like even the things, like even if it's people, like sometimes it feels like the things we love or the things that we fall in love with. Yeah. It's like, where did you even come from? But I think 
I don't know. I've been thinking too about, not to, this is related, I promise, but just we're able to connect with animals differently because we can't communicate with them in the same way. Like there's less bullshit than we have to deal with with other people. Like our relationships with other humans are so complicated because of the ways that we have to interact with each other and that we have to verbally communicate with each other and always kind of negotiate our needs verbally and misunderstanding each other's body language and with animals it's just like you can cut through all that and so it's more simplistic and it's more it just feels more natural in some ways if that makes sense because because they do seem like little aliens Mm -hmm. because we can't communicate with them the same way we communicate with people but it's almost better that way and just you can actually I think see each other more clearly that's really cheesy but no, I think you're to- you're right on because you have to have this language with your pet that you create yourself and like you can kind of build on what obviously like animals do, which is like, you know, you look at a dog in the eye or pet a dog, right? They're, they're like very clear things. But like also Petey, my cat, our love language is me putting my face in his belly and like <laughs> our love language is him holding on to me like a koala he learned that that was the way that I showed him how I loved him. And he had to just start to be okay with that as a cat and like not be okay with it, but like understand like (laughs) this is how we're going to show love to each other. Like I think if he had been anybody else's animal who was, who didn't do the same kind of things that I did, he would be a different kind of, his language would be a little bit differently, but because like he and I have been together for 10 years, almost 10 years, the way that we tell each other that we like each other is a thing that like we've created on our own. And it's totally based on like weird physical or very small natural things. Yeah, because you have to like follow and respect and adapt to each other's instincts. Yeah. In a way that as humans relating to one another is just so much more complicated. Yeah, and in some ways it makes your cats really, like your animals are very attuned to you. Mm -hmm. When you were talking, I started thinking about how if I am eating like yogurt or ice cream and I start to scrape the edge like I'm almost done and I scrape the edge of the container mm-hmm. or the bowl my cat will jump down because he knows I'm about to give it to him but like I am not even aware I'm making that noise right mm-hmm. like I'm not listening to the noise it's background to me and like Phil's not paying attention to that but Yosarian has gotten so attuned he's like oh this noise means this thing to me mm-hmm. and so like we have this little symbiotic thing going on where he hops down and Sure enough, I do give him – or like he hops up on the piano every morning and I give him a, a little cat massage. <laughs> I sing, I sing, who wants a kitty massage? And I give him a massage. Um, <laughs> but like he didn't always hop up on the piano. It's just like he hopped up on the piano once. I gave him a little kitty massage and then he's like, that was sweet. <laughs> and now if I don't notice him up on the piano, he cries like, bitch, <laughs> I'm on the piano. Yeah, like <laughs> you all- this is our weird little contract. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's like, you're always asking who wants a kitty massage and it's always me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Hubble, Hubble's like every time I'll close my laptop, he knows we're about to like go out or do something. And he does, he's just very excited. Or when I like take out my sunglasses. My favorite is when I pull out my keys. If he hears just, even if I like move something else and he hears my keys, he races downstairs. He's like, great, where are we going? This is going to be the best. I'm all in. And my other favorite is when I 
go to the bathroom to brush my teeth at night. That's somehow become his cue. It's bedtime. Let's go. And so I go brush my teeth. And by the time that I've like even picked up my toothbrush and put it under the water, he is on the bed, on the pillow (laughs) waiting. And then he knows – and like he's usually sitting in my spot. And so I'll go scooch and he'll literally just like go boop, 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 and he'll scooch back so that I can get in bed. It is – and like that thing about dogs too and like, I mean, animals, they know everything about you. And you don't – like you don't even know some things about you. They know the things about you that you don't even – that you're not even aware of, those routines and those – the different ways that you move. Yes. The thing that is hilarious to me about our cat, side cat, is that she can always anticipate like when we're watching TV or doing whatever, she can always anticipate 10 minutes before we're about to like get up and go to bed. And that's when she chooses to come and like fall asleep on my lap (laughs) because she knows that that's her time to cuddle. But it's also very manipulative because and and the times often change like weekdays, weekends. It can be like a couple hours difference, but she always knows like 10 minutes before we're about to go to bed. And that that's Mm -hmm. when she knows she can like manipulate us into cuddling with her before we go to bed. It's crazy. (laughs) So all this talk about this kind of like symbiotic living makes me think of one of my suggestions, which is I think that, Gabrielle, you should watch E.T. Because, yeah, there's like that thing where like when E.T. starts to get sick, Elliot starts to get sick. Like they're so linked that they're just like experiencing the same things. And I think that would make you feel a little better maybe. Can I tell you something? Yes. I've never seen (gasps) E.T. Gail. Um, because it was too sad. And so that was not a movie that was really allowed in my house. It wasn't like expressly not allowed, but I think like one time we watched it, like, I think I watched it at like an after school day camp, daycare thing, but it didn't finish it. And I only ever remember like getting to a point when things started to get sad and it always getting turned off. I was like already so young that even that beginning part was it was like so fuzzy because I had a brain of mush. So yeah, I didn't like it was just just like oh yeah, well you don't want to watch that. It's too sad. No, you should watch. And I was it. like it's, cool, great, done. It's an excellent movie, <laughs> and it it's a children's movie. It doesn't end on a sad note. <laughs> it doesn't. No, things are sad and scary, but then everything works out just fine. It does really. I mean, yes and no. <laughs> I mean, okay. It's not – Yeah, I guess we can talk about spoilers later. I, I don't think you can spoil a movie that came out in 1985. <laughs> yeah, that's well, I mean, true. I don't, you know me. I don't care. I just don't – I want to think about our, our listeners. Okay. So in case you <laughs> – it's not devastating, let's say. Okay. No, you get to a place of acceptance. Yeah, and, and like resolution and – yeah. Yeah, but those things are still not really a, a favorite thing in the Thompson household. <laughs> Like even if there's sadness, but then there's resolution afterwards. That's not we don't we don't ever get to the resolution part. But ET, it's like it's sad, and then we turn it off. ET in a lot of ways is like those movies you were talking about before, where it's like when you love a wild thing, like what happens? Like yeah. Harry and the Hendersons. That's like, why it's horrible. Yeah, like yeah. John Lithgow has to be mean to Harry and and make him go right, or like Free Willy gets to <sighs> swim free because that's what he's supposed to do. And ET, you know, yeah. he's got to be. Safe and away from the crazy scientist. So he doesn't die? No. No. He doesn't die. If you love oh. something, if you love something, set it free. Yes. Is sort of oh, the, the theme here. I, 
Oh, every no, I thought goes, it was. He goes he back to his alien. No, family. he goes. Yeah, ET. Oh. ET phones home. Gail, you've missed so yeah. much of culture. <laughs> I think even like my family told me he died. Well, because they didn't watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh my God. This is amazing. That's what I mean by it doesn't end sad. Like it's sad because E.T. and Elliot can't be together, but like Elliot helps him get back where he's supposed to be, where he belongs. Okay. That's okay. And they learn a lot from each other. Around that journey. Yeah. It's, oh, it's so good. Well, that's good to know. I thought he just died. Like I thought it was like, Man, things are really terrible. See you later. <laughs> no. No. No, it's sad, but it's not devastating. Okay. All right. I can handle that. <laughs> On, well, a sort of similar note, but a maybe sillier note, one of the movies that came to mind was the movie Andre. <gasps> I oh my loved God. that movie. <laughs> Which that stars movie. Tina Majorino and her family. I think they're, they live in Maine. They rescue this sea lion named Andre, whose mother drowned in a fishing net. And it's just this beautiful story of a child and her family, like, bonding with the sea lion who's often in danger and the town is divided on, well, there's all this other stuff going on about people who, like, are hating the sea lions because they're affecting the fish that they're catching and somebody tries to, like murder Andre but anyway it it's just this like lovely movie and it it has a good ending of this little girl bonding with her wild sea lion Andre and he's delightful and they teach him tricks and it's just a feel-good movie that I think you would appreciate Gabrielle plus it's got all the like 90s nostalgia yeah that dad I love him so much he like I love a good like a partner in crime dad yes like when they keep him down in the in the bath room mm-hmm. like in the bathtub mm-hmm. for a little while it's just so cute i mean it's whole you know i'm sure andre's not having a great time but he seems like he is you know he seems <laughs> happy with everything but i love at the end when they play the videos of the real andre the seal and you know and they they show him at the end and they're like showing the real footage of the real Andre Mm -hmm. and all the family and him. I just think it's so cute. It is. That's all. I don't know. It's so good. (laughs) I was relying on you, Gail, honestly, for the finer details because I knew you would have them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I loved that movie so much. And I mean, I think it's about connecting with your family, but it's, it's then got like the teenager problem in like the 60s. Whoa. And then like they're trying, you know, like every, it's all about family and relationships and being loyal. Oh my God. It's got everything. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's like, there's some part where the girl, oh yeah, the daughter like goes and does something that like is dangerous and like somebody, God, what happens? I think like her sister starts dating this boy whose dad was like the one who's trying to kill Andre. Yes! And so it like causes yes! this like I'm gonna cry. Uh, Montague and Capulet feud, but over a, a sea lion. And they like kidnap Andre. And then the daughter, Tina Majorino, she 
I think takes out like a dinghy or something and then there's like yeah. a storm. She's real dangerous. But she's like trying to save this sea lion. It's all very dramatic. And um, then the, the sister the sister calls or like goes to this like they've got Andre and she's like she's just so oh god I'm like replaying this whole part. Yeah mm-hmm. it's so good. In my head the sister ends up like being loyal to the family and to the seal even though she hates the sea. Oh god. Yeah. I just it's so good. I have to cry. <laughs> yeah. I decided not to like really go into loss very much here. <laughs> Mainly because I'm going through a lot of transitioning in my life right now. <laughs> and I was like, I think it's probably best if I stick with the cute stuff. Oh. Well, and it it also the, this whole genre of movies and books about especially children and their bonds with animals. It just brought up all of these really emotional parts of my childhood, like mm-hmm. Homeward Bound and The NeverEnding Story, which we don't need to talk oh about. My God. We can't. No, please. We can't. We can't go there. Or like Where the Red Fern Grows was one that came oh, to God. mind, or Old Yeller. And I was just like, oh my God, these are all just devastating. But they are also beautiful like snapshots of... <laughs> How you can create a bond with an animal that just can't rival your connection with human and that it's valuable and vulnerable. And children have so much of that same kind of language too. Yes. Like, we're, I mean, we're all little animals, but in the end, like children want to be cuddled. Children want to be, there are these things that like children, like they run so much on instinct and comfort. And I feel like they can have I don't know, can have a stronger bond, but like the bond between a child and a pet is just like, like they know the difference between children and and adults. And like, I I don't know, I feel like there's this weird, there's like a weird other alien language that happens between children and animals. Yeah, well, and, and kids are often, you know, you bond with animals too when you feel like you're not understood. Yes. By people who are older, like you don't feel valued in the world. And so, like, people do treat you kind of like an alien or someone who can't understand things on an intellectual level. I want to, piggybacking off of that, I would like to recommend, Gabrielle, that you read and or reread the Harry Potter books because the special place that Hedwig has in Harry's life I think is so important because, like, we see him get Hedwig really early. She's – other than Hagrid – The only bond or person – I mean, she's not a person, but she's the only relationship he brings into the Mm -hmm. wizarding world with him. He buys her like that first day that he goes to Diagon Alley. He gets to choose anything. He chooses his snowy owl. And in the world of Harry Potter, owls actually like do work for humans, right? Like they – and we see other people's relationships with owls is not as close. It's more kind of transactional. But – For Harry, who very often feels isolated and alone, sometimes because he's being a jerk and not paying attention to his very close friends who could be there for him, but sometimes not to his own fault, like sometimes when he's locked up at the Dursleys, he always has Hedwig by his his side and she's always there to comfort him. And even like when he's locked up at the Dursleys, she's also has to be locked in her cage. They have this like very close connection. And then her death is freaking devastating because they've built that relationship so much over the books. And I remember before the seventh book came out, there was like all this discussion of like who was going to die, which main character would die, blah, blah, blah. And even in the scene when when Hedwig does die, you, you kind of are led to believe that other people might have been injured. And then when you find out it's Hedwig, it's just so heartbreaking because 
oh, I'm going to cry <laughs> because <laughs> of all the losses that Harry sustained in that moment for me, like Harry seemed really alone. Yeah. And they like she just is gone. And that's what's su- – right? Isn't it? Isn't that what happens? Yeah. I, because I'm like building off of this thing that may be alive. No, it is. It's like someone throws a I, – I think it's Voldemort fires a spell at Harry and Hedwig right. is – Hedwig's dangling from his broom and it hits Hedwig instead and she's just – and, and she just goes just down. instantly dead. Yeah, it happens in the middle of action, right? And like, so you keep reading because yeah. you have to figure out if everyone else is okay. And then there's just like, oh shit, that happened. You just got to <laughs> keep going. Yeah, yeah. Oh god. Well, great. <laughs> Sorry, I went heavy. On, um, I went heavy on the loss because I think, I think reading about yeah, I think it is important when you're going through it. It is important, and I. Just, I think it's good because I had to go the opposite. Because <laughs> I myself, you know, it's so easy to go that road. And I mean, like, well, and it opens a well of sadness. I think it does. In all of us. It's just the worst. Yeah. One. So the first thing that's really this whole thing made me think of going kind of back to the mixture of having wildness in your house or like as a part of your living space. I, so there's that, you know, there's like the scientist who had the dolphins that lived in her house, like a whole just house. And then underneath in the floors, there were just her dolphin friends. That's not her friends, but her dolphin subjects because she was a scientist, but let's call them her friends. <laughs> so like there was this, also this Chinese fairy tale that I used to read. Um, and I can't, I, I'll never be able to find it, but it was my, I think it's in a book that I might still have, but it's long been packed far away but there's a man who kept a live shrimp in a bowl and I was like oh my god I need to have this live shrimp in a bowl and I'm not really sure why but it was just the sense of like I want to have and I used to try to get my mom to buy the lobsters so I could have my own little ocean in our house but anyway so all this to say there is a supplementary book to the diary of Anne Frank where so it's called Anne Frank's Tales from the Secret Annex, and it came out probably like ninety four. I don't know, but it's basically like taking all the things that she wrote that were outside of the diary and like put them together in a book. And so there are all these like vignettes and some short stories that she wrote, and there's like the beginning of a novel. And so there's like all these different things. But the one thing that really stuck in my head was there's this uh, short story that she wrote called Katcha, and I think. I don't, so my books are packed away, far away. They're in Georgia right now. So I can't totally, like, I don't have the story in front of me, but it's about this family that I think it's during the war. And I think they're like so far in the country to where, and I think they might be in hiding or they might not need to be in hiding because they're so far in the country, but there's something about them being so far in the country. But the one thing that I remember is that this girl, Katja, kept bunnies, like kept these rabbits around her house. They were her pets. But they were in their yards and they would like use the yard as just like a giant cage. And they would just be like jumping around their front stoop and jumping around the backyard. And they were just like part of their lives and their their house. But also they were outside. They were just being bunnies outside, which I like, it really blew my mind for some reason. Um, But it's a really, really cute short story. Obviously it's like not, you know, it's written by a 13 year old, but the whole thing, I'd recommend the entire thing really in connection with that. She wrote, she writes a lot about bunnies. She also wrote a poem about a duck, which you might enjoy Gabrielle, but she, she includes little pets in almost all of her little stories and vignettes. And like, it's one of the things I really think it's unfair about Anne Frank 
of the many things. <laughs> There's only one. There's only one thing here. Um, there are several things unfair about Anne Frank, but mainly the, the the fact is that she had to give up her cat to go into hiding. Morkja, I think is how you say it. M O O R T J E, Morkja. They were like, "No, Anne, you can't have cats in hiding. Aren't you an idiot?" And so she was like, "All right, see you later. Here's some meat. The neighbors will take care of you. Bye. We have to go live." But then Peter comes in. Guess what he brings? His stupid cat, Mushi. <laughs> And Anne is like, are you fucking kidding me? He gets to bring in a cat? She doesn't quite say all that. But it's so upsetting to me because she had to do this whole big sacrifice. And Peter was just like, I want to bring my cat. And it's like the parents who decide that, right? And it's like his parents were not responsible enough to tell Peter, no, you can't have a stupid cat. You're in hiding. Anyway, it's upsetting. That is. That is a yeah. great in- injustice. Mm-hmm. It is. Of the many injustices done to Anne Frank, that is one of them. But anyway, I do highly recommend this book because it's not its not very – like no, not a lot of people read it. It's really good. And it just reminds you that Anne Frank was like a real writer. And it's just insane to think about what she could have been had she not died at 16. Yeah. This is a little bit of an aside, but when I was working at the public library, we were talking about Anne Frank with my kids. I had elementary age kids, like 6 to 12, and we were talking about Anne Frank. And this little – bright little girl who's probably, she's probably a third grader, so eight or nine. She said, I can't believe a 13-year-old wrote a book that everyone wanted to read. And it you could see it like got her very excited that a child could be, mm-hmm. that a child, yeah, that a child's words and writing could be taken seriously. It was like this mm-hmm. exciting notion to her. And I think that's a really valuable thing yeah. to point out that she was a writer. She was a good writer. And and no one else really wanted to hear what she had to say. Like her family, I mean, I don't say her entire family, but like especially in the attic, they were just like, oh, chatty Anne, she's so stupid. All she does is talk. The girls should be quiet and like stop saying all of your feelings. And Anne is like, you know what? Screw you guys. I'm going to go write all my feelings down. Yeah. And they were smart. Yeah. So anyway, I highly recommend that. It's very small. It's very cheap. It's just very good. She always has little pets. And I think, and I always connect that to the fact that she had to give up her little cat. I don't know. I also just had this thought that animals don't disappoint you in the ways that your human relationships do. And that's just like a very simple, simple thing. I don't know. That's true. And something we haven't really talked about yet. And I thought about this when I was thinking about Harry Potter too. And like one of the reasons I suggested it, but I didn't say it yet is that animals also are kind of, they allow you to do a lot of projecting. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm the first to say, oh, no, my cat loves me and we have a, like, close bond. But there's also – there's so much that you're reading into an animal's behavior. And you know how people Uh say when you write, like, every character is some shade of you? I think the things you are assuming about your (laughs) animal's state of mind really say a lot about your state of mind and, like, the way you think. Oh, yeah. yeah. The way that we anthropomorphize. Yeah, and like, like we yeah. project our own human emotions on them when there's really yeah. no like psychological evidence that animals feel the same way we do. Right. And like this, yeah. the specific intimacy of that within your relationship with your animal, I think is so. Yeah. I think it's part of what makes that relationship really meaningful and cathartic is that you are in some ways using them to piece together the ways you're feeling. Mm-hmm. I was writing a thing about space. I was doing this like interview with Zach Powers about space and it was very similar where, I mean, not very similar because space is not a living being, but we're so good at projecting 
things onto other things. And that's why we love space is because it's something that's like huge and immense, but there's really no meaning behind it. It's just like, dang, look at this stuff. I'm going to project all sorts of stuff Mm -hmm. on it. And then that's why it's so important to us. Even though I will say they did all those scientific studies on dogs. And number one, they dream about you. Number two, they release, I think like oxytocin or something like that. That's like the family neurotransmitter. They see us as family. So I'm just saying. Now, what family means to them is totally different. But Right. (laughs) Right. I think we are all in agreement that there are degrees to which like the truth is somewhere in the middle where it's like animals are processing and feeling things and whatever, and we are also projecting. And like, yes, those things meet and that becomes our relationship with our animals or something. Yes. Yeah. I follow, I think, mostly animals or like zoos or national parks on Instagram, which is maybe a later recommendation is to follow animals online and people's relationships with animals. I follow one of many zoos. I think it's the Cincinnati Zoo. It's a zoo that just had to rehome one of their, I think, one-year-old hippos named Tony. And they posted this, you know, adorable photo of Tony with his hippo mom and this just factual post that, you know, the zoo is going to miss Tony. He's part of this program that simulates how hippos act in the wild. And around a year, mothers start weaning their babies and kind of kick them out of the clan so that they learn how to live on their own. And so they remove Tony from his mother to help simulate this behavior in the wild. And so I was reading the comments on the Instagram posts and the ways in which people project their own emotions on animals. It was kind of hilarious because people were just like, how dare you rip this hippo away from his mother? Like, how do you think his mother feels like she must be devastated? And so you see this way in which we so want to and need to, I think, to a certain degree, like project Uh our own like human emotions and relationships onto animals. But it was just this this outrage. Yeah, well, that too. (laughs) (laughs) It's like also it's science and we need to respect. We've we've explained it very clearly. Yes, (laughs) yes, exactly. But it was just this kind of unraveling of humans thinking about human children being ripped away from their mothers, which of course is devastating. And yeah, but displacing that onto this hippo family, it was just, it was really interesting. That makes me think of one of my other suggestions, which is I think Gabrielle, you should watch the Sopranos from the beginning because they're at the, I think it's season one. I'm pretty sure it happens even in the first episode that Tony has these ducks in his neighborhood that he's trying to like help there's something wrong with the duck. I can't remember what, but like it's the first thing that kind of humanizes Tony and shows you that he's more than like this horrible job he has is like he cares so much about these ducks. And there's this great scene where he's like in the uh, pond out back of the house trying to get the ducks to fly or whatever it is he needs them to do. And I think that obviously that's a plot device, right? Like, so not only are we in our day to day lives, projecting things onto the animals we actually know. But I also think like this like connection with animals is something that they're obviously using to soften Tony and to make you invested in Tony in the show. And then so much of the show is about Tony's psychology. And like, to me, the best scenes are the ones with he and his therapist. And 
I think one of the ways into you caring about the psychology of this character is his relationships with these neighborhood ducks. So I would watch – and also the hippo was named Tony, which made me think I should so say it now. But I think you should watch The Sopranos. <laughs> yeah, and what's funny, that reminds me of the Bob's Burgers episode when Tina falls in love with a goose. <laughs> And she, I'm trying to remember it. I think it's called like Every Which Way But Goose or something like that. And I think she's like, it's definitely displacing because I think it's when What's-His-Face doesn't take, he doesn't ask her to the dance. Uh, and so she's like, well, I'm sad. And then goes to the park and starts talking with this goose. And she's just like only fully herself when she's around this goose. And nobody else really knows it's a goose. They think, I think she like treats it like she's dating someone new and then they find out that it, she's just been talking to a goose. Anyway, it's great. It's just, oh yeah, because she's like, she like tells them she's doing something. She's like on a date or something so she can't go to work and then they follow her and it turns out she's just been talking with this goose the whole time at the park. <laughs> anyway, it's fantastic and I highly recommend that episode because <laughs> it also has John Hamm as a talking toilet. It's really good. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> What more could you need? <laughs> yeah, there's a it's a whole melange of things. <laughs> um, so my actual recommendation, I have two and they're both about dogs, but I'll read that I have a, a poem that I recommend and it's by Nomi Stone and it's called Waiting for Happiness. And it's basically, I'll read like the first line and a half, but it's about how much and how like connected dogs are to people or animals are to people and that like we're not we're not all that different you and I it's not part of the poem but anyway it's very good waiting for happiness dog knows when friend will come home because each hour friends smell pales air paring down the good smell with its little diamond it means I miss you oh I miss you how hard it is to wait for my happiness and how good when it arrives and then it goes on but those are my first two favorite lines and then, yeah, and then it ends. It's like going through all this other stuff. And then the last two lines are, but it is almost five, says the dog. It is almost five. It's just, <laughs> right? It's just, oh, God. It's That's very perfect. good. It's in the, it's in a recent Ten House, I think one in the last year. But yeah, it's really sweet. And it's this, it's very cute. Dogs know, like it, like the smell. And I mean, it's every, and I think every pet parent can tell you, like even the gross smells of their animals. You're like, oh, I love it. You know? It's like so it's so instinctive. Well, I have a I have a recommendation, I guess responding to your question, Gabrielle. I mean, we ha- we've been answering this question, but the do animals really just help us as people? I think we've talked about our like emotional and like instinctual relationships with animals, but it also reminded me of this new Netflix series called Dogs. Oh which- my god. Which, Gail, I know you've watched. Tear tear me apart. Jeez. But it's about the very real ways in which dogs help us. And there are six episodes. And, I mean, I'll just tell you a little bit about the series. But the first episode is about this little girl with epilepsy and her family just struggling to help her and cope with her disorder and their journey to apply for and receive a service dog for their daughter. Um, And the dog's name is Rory. And you just follow this story of this little girl 
and her service dog who helps like detect her seizures before they occur and her family who is just like so grateful and so relieved and then you just get to see this little girl's like relationship with the dog too but the series is just amazing because each episode follows a different person's very deep relationship with a dog and the ways in which animals or dogs can really help humans like on a service level on an emotional level and it's just it's beautiful and it's sad I would recommend it, Gabrielle, because I do think to answer your question very briefly, yes, animals really (laughs) help us as people in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I want to tell you guys a really cool thing. My friend who is a horticulturalist and who working in Mm. Florida with the Department of Agriculture worked a lot with citrus um, was telling me about – so there are certain things they can test in a tree – Um, Like there are human metrics that we use to test the presence of a particular type of, I think it's a parasite, something that blights the tree. It's not citrus canker, but it's another type of issue, which maybe this is common knowledge, but maybe it's only common knowledge in South Florida. If you have an instance of citrus canker or one of these other parasites or blights, they have to cut down every tree within like a... Mm. yeah, Yeah, it's like if you find it in one tree, you have to cut down all the trees within like a fairly large radius because it's just industry crippling if this thing were to spread. So early detection is a really big thing. And at some point they were training dogs to be able to smell whatever this chemical compound is or what, I don't know, whatever it, whatever they're able to measure with the human metric, they were training dogs to be able to smell that thing, to be able to determine. And the first time they took the dogs out, the dogs were trained to lay down at the base of a tree that had a problem. They laid down on all the trees that had problems, but then they also laid down on some other trees. And so they were like, oh, it's not working. And then within like another six months to a year, each of those trees showed evidence on our human metrics of this problem. And so the dogs were able to detect it six months to a year before the human metrics were. So the dogs in retrospect were right and actually just knew more than we did. And I just think that's the coolest story. So that's that's another... Yeah, it's like such a cool, amazing thing that animals can do. And again, they can't, co- the, the dogs were doing exactly what they had been taught to, to communicate this to us. And we were like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> God, <don't>, so <laughs> stupid. Oh, God. What I really love about that first episode of Dogs and first of all, any dogs with jobs, I just want to cry. There's this, I, I know I told you guys this. I I was going to say I'm, I've been very emotional lately, but I think maybe I'm just becoming an adult finally. I don't know. <laughs> but I was looking at what – like how I might – the possibility – I'm not – I wasn't actually looking into this, but what it would be like to adopt or foster a retired army service dog or police dog. And like I was like, well, that would be really sweet. Like the last four or five years of their life, just like take care of them and blah, blah, blah. And I was like looking at all of the recommendations. Turns out I can't do it. You ha- you can't have any other animals because you don't know what the dog's been through. So like it's best if they're alone and they have your full attention. But there's this one thing at the bottom that goes, these dogs cannot be service dogs. Basically, it was like this big caveat at the end. It's like you can't get this dog to be a service dog. But the way that they said it, Uh, It was like in all bold and it said like, do not train these dogs as service dogs. Their work is done. And like that, like their work is done makes me cry every time I even think about it because I'm like, their work is done. They just need all the treats and all the pets and all the cuddles 
that they could get because their job is over. And it was just, anyway, it was like the sweetest thing to think about it like that. But anyway, but there's, so the best part of that dog episode <laughs> is that little girl with the spinal um, issue. And I can't remember what it is. I remember looking it up at the oh, time. yeah. But she has that dog to stabilize her. Yes. And she loves to dance and the dog is like going to help her keep, anyway, it's she, like the way that that dog specifically with her because I know she's she's a small part, but I think like their partnership might be the most visibly successful in yes. the episode. It just kills me. It's so sweet. The way that that dog is just so still and loves her. And she's so small and so like- Yeah, she's tiny. Breakable. <laughs> yeah. And he's just so patient and comforting. And I love him. That's all. My dog is snoring in my lap right now. <laughs> I would like to recommend a poem and it's a poem by James Tate. And as soon as I heard this question, I was thinking there's got to be a, a James Tate poem for this just because he writes so much about animals. Mm-hmm. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with James Tate, and I'm sure other smarter people have said this in a better way, but I feel like he really, so James Tate is a, uh, was a Pulitzer prize winning poet, long career, like I don't know, 15 plus books of poetry or something like that. And to me, it almost seems like he had two different stages of his career. And in his younger life, he wrote kind of these more like complex poems that required a little more like a little more from the reader. They were not quite as accessible. And then in his later life, he wrote these really accessible poems that read. Many of them are in this like dialogue form where it's a person sometimes talking to another person or to another or to an animal or to a being. And they're, they read like these little scenes almost, and they're super approachable and just like really lovely. And many, many, many of them involve animals. And I saw him, I don't remember. So James Tate was our, was our professor at school. I don't remember if he said this sometime when we were at school or if I saw it, if he said it when I went to the um, writing Institute before we started there, but someone asked him, why do you write with animals so often? And his answer was, I make myself write nine poems without an animal for every poem I write with an animal. <laughs> but the poems with animals are better. So they're the ones that make it into the books. <laughs> and like, he just, he couldn't not. It's like a, a, it's a way that he kind of interacted with the world, especially later in his career through his writing was to use animals. And I think in some ways the animals are very – they function very sentimentally in his poems. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting. I I almost wonder if he hadn't had this like first stage of his career where he like established that he was a serious writer, if people wouldn't value Mm -hmm. those animal poems less. Like it's almost like because he's established like I'm a very serious man, that then he's allowed this latitude to be sentimental. Yeah, you can can do a lot of stuff when you win the Yale Younger. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, Yale Younger, Pulitzer Prize, then you can write whatever you want. But I do think, I mean, the word sentimental or sentimentality is used as such a pejorative in writing. And I, when it's being done in a way that feels manipulative and easy, then yeah, it's a problem. But I think that just for writing for writing to be sentimental does not mean that it's bad. And so mm-hmm. I think it's it's kind of cool how he's allowed this leeway. Um, so I looked all over for duck poems and there are tons. I mean, like there's so many James Tate poems with ducks in them. And a lot of them, it's like just in passing, like the ducks are, he's like, and there was a duck pond. Like he almost can't keep, but put mm-hmm. ducks in, in poems, it seems. But 
the poem that I thought had a duck in it didn't even have a duck in it. And I would have told you hands down it's a duck. I would have allowed that like maybe it was another bird. There's not even a bird in the poem. But it's still – so I am recommending read James Tate, especially his later work. The poem I'm going to read to you does not have a duck, but I still think it's really relevant to your situation right now. And there's kind of – I'm saying there's more where this came from in the world of James Tate. And this poem is called The Cowboy. <laughs> Someone had spread an elaborate rumor about me that I was in possession of an extraterrestrial being, and I thought I knew who it was. It was Roger Lawson. Roger was a practical joker of the worst sort, and up till now, I had not been one of his victims, so I kind of knew my time had come. People parked in front of my house for hours and took pictures. I had to draw all my blinds and only went out when I had to. Then there was a barrage of questions. What does he look like? What do you feed him? How did you capture him? And I simply denied the presence of an extraterrestrial in my house. And of course, this excited them all the more. The press showed up and started creeping around my yard. It got to be very irritating. More and more came and parked up and down the street. Roger was really working overtime on this one. I had to do something. Finally, I made an announcement. I said, the little fellow died peacefully in his sleep at 11.02 last night. Let us see the body, they clamored. He went up in smoke instantly, I said. I don't believe you, one of them said. There is no body in the house or I would have buried it myself, I said. About half of them got in their cars and drove off. The rest of them kept their vigil, but more solemnly now. I went out and bought some groceries. When I came back about an hour later, another half of them had gone. When I went into the kitchen, I nearly dropped the groceries. There was a nearly transparent fellow with large pink eyes standing about three feet tall. Why did you tell them I was dead? That was a lie, he said. You speak English, I said. I listened to the radio. It wasn't very hard to learn. Also, we have television. We get all your channels. I like cowboys, especially John Ford movies. They're the best, he said. What am I going to do with you, I said. Take me to meet a real cowboy. That would make me happy, he said. I don't know any real cowboys, but maybe we could find one. But people will go crazy if they see you. We have press following us everywhere. It would be the story of the century, I said. I can be invisible. It's not hard for me to do, he said. I'll think about it. Wyoming or Montana would be our best bet, but they're a long way from here, I said. Please, I won't cause you any trouble, he said. It would take some planning, I said. I put the groceries down and started putting them away. I tried not to think of the cosmic meaning of all of this. Instead, I treated him like a smart little kid. Do you have any sarsaparilla, he said. No, but I have some orange juice. It's good for you, I said. He drank it and made a face. I'm going to get the maps out, I said. We'll see how we could get there. When I came back, he was dancing on the kitchen table, a sort of ballet, but very sad. I have the maps, I said. We won't need them. I just received word. I'm going to die tonight. It's really a joyous occasion, and I hope you'll help me celebrate by watching The Magnificent Seven, he said. I stood there with the maps in my hand. I felt an unbearable sadness come over me. Why must you die, I said. Father decides these things. It is probably my reward for coming here safely and meeting you, he said. But I was going to take you to meet a real cowboy, I said. Let's pretend you are my cowboy, he said. That is one of my favorite poems of all time. Me too. Me too. It's so beautiful. It is. So 
I just want to say that was also one of my recommendations. And so I love Was yeah. it really? Yes. I was actually even thinking about oh. doing it too. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I love about James Tate and especially his later work, like you said, is that his poems begin with this sort of ordinary narrative conceit. And then they veer off into this surreal territory. And they often just seem so normal until they're not. And he just has this way of creating this narrative that seems like very silly and is often very funny, but then at the end is just really gutting and insightful. And I don't know any other poets who can do that the way that James Tate did. And that poem just, it makes me laugh. And then the end just makes me tear up every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. And I think like, Looking at the way their relationship progresses in just, I mean, it is quite a long poem. It's like almost two and a half pages, but seeing the way the relationship progresses, like first he's like, oh, you're here. Like they have like their, their first encounter where they're like, you're this odd thing. And then the alien asks him for something and he's like, I don't know if I, if I can do that. And then he decides that he's going to go all out and do like, he's like committed then. And then the alien's like, I have to go. I mean, just the way the story arc is compressed, but it's a very emotional story arc that he he gets in with this like very simple dialogue between them that just it's so beautiful yeah so I would like to also recommend James so James Tate's um so he died in uh 2015 um beginning of July 2015 I think the second and July 2nd of this month his last book of poems came out called The Government Lake and I would say 50 to 75% of the poems in this collection feature relationships between humans and their pets or humans and their animals. So I have a poem I would like to read that immediately came to mind, mostly because of the title. Um, it's called My New Pet. So thinking about you, Gabrielle. It's in a little bit of a different vein than the cowboy, but I'm just going to read it. My new pet. It was Thanksgiving and there was no one on the street. I was downtown and nothing was open. I was alone as no one had invited me to dinner. I had no family nearby. It's not that I hadn't friends. It's just that they had forgotten me. I walked along the streets, not feeling sorry for myself. In fact, rather happy just being alive when I noticed that a dog was following me. He was just a mutt, but rather sweet looking. I stopped to let him catch up with me, and then I started petting him. He seemed to like it. We started walking together. When we got back to my car, I picked him up and put him in. I drove out to my house, which was barely in the country, just three miles from town. I let him out and went inside. He wagged his tail and ran around the house exploring. I went into the kitchen and made us some hot dogs and baked beans. I put his in a bowl and called him to dinner. We ate at the dining room table, the dog right beside my chair. When we finished, I grabbed the dishes and washed them. Then I went to take a nap. The dog jumped on the bed and lay down beside me. I decided to call him Snuggles. We slept for an hour, then got up. I found a ball and started tossing it to him. 
He brought it back every time. Then I had to do some work. I settled down at the table and opened my notebook. I concentrated on the problems I had for an hour or so when I noticed Snuggles wrestling with a three-foot black snake. I couldn't imagine where it came from. Snuggles was tossing it in the air. Then, suddenly, the snake had wrapped itself around Snuggles' neck and Snuggles was gagging. I jumped to my feet and grabbed the snake as hard as I could and yanked it free and smashed it to the floor. The snake crawled away into my bedroom, but Snuggles died right there in my hands. I laid him down on the couch and went looking for the snake in my bedroom, my new pet. Oh, Snuggles. (laughs) Which is just... That's devastating. It's devastating and it's cruel, but it's also beautiful, which is just what I love about James Tate, is that he develops this just kinship in this poem between him and his new dog, and then (laughs) the dog dies at the end. But then he's like, well, what killed the dog is my new pet, which is ridiculous, but it's just sort of a different side to James Tate that I also think is just always surprising and funny, but also devastating. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited. I don't have that book yet. I'm really excited to get it. It's really great. I think actually, and I know Matthew Zapruder um, said this, he wrote this beautiful piece um, about this book for the Paris Review. And he says like, it seems strange to say, but the government lake might be like the best introduction to James Tate for new readers because it just like distills his style and his kind of surreal and yeah, his, his approach to poems like the best so far. I'm having this really meta moment where we started out having this conversation to talk about helping Gabrielle deal with a loss, but now we've circled around to in doing that talking about someone who we knew and cared deeply about and lost. And now I'm feeling like the, the folds of grief are strong guys. I'm just like, yeah, it's very true. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Adulthood, man. Ah, (laughs) (laughs) the hits just keep on coming. Yeah. Yeah. That's like part of my biggest suggestion. Cause I know like, at least in our family, we have a dog and we love it desperately. And then its death devastates us and we can't recover for quite some time. Then years later, we maybe decide to get a dog and then it happens all over again. And I just think like the best, and I, you know, there's so many articles that say this too, but like the best thing to do is to, I mean, even just like, if you're being friggin' realistic, your dog's getting old, get a puppy. So that old dog, like it's just even practical. The old dog teaches the puppy how to be, what to do, how to live its life, how to pee and poop in the right places, how to love, how to do the thing. And then the dog dies. It's so sad. But guess what? You have this other dog. It's like kind of cruel, but then it's also like practical. Like it's like because it's so hard once if you have one thing and that thing goes, it's so hard to make that decision afterward. To be like, oh, God, can I even, I don't even know if I'm going to love a thing. But like, if you have that puppy, then you'll be okay. And Gabrielle, you did ask us the end of your question. You said, should I get another animal? And I think yes. Yes. And I think we've all made a really 
we've made a strong case for yes. And that doesn't mean you have to run out and do it right away. You can feel what you're feeling about Donald because that's all super valid. But I don't think you should feel like, you know, Anne said before, were you using Donald to fill a void? Yes. Do animals really help people? Yes. So get one. There's no reason not to. There's no reason to deprive yourself of that connection. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I got my dog right before I was moving across country to a place I never, like I didn't know about and I didn't have any friends and I didn't know how it was going to be. And like, even when I had friends, it was so helpful to have a dog. But like the, the dog was the best thing that ever happened to me because it filled a void that without it, it would have been a void. <laughs> but also like animals also like give you structure and give you a purpose in a sense. Yeah. Because like you said before, like you have to take care of them and you have to do those very basic things. Like if you get a puppy, like you have to train the puppy and – they give you so much more than just emotional comfort. Mm-hmm. They give you a structure and a purpose. Um, so my last recommendation is, it sounds silly, but I can't, I cannot, I mean, I've already said the Anne Frank short story. So I think um, my credibility is, it's all over the place. Shot. <laughs> yeah. No offense, Anne Frank. So Virginia Woolf wrote a novella. Eh, it's a novel. Eh, yeah, it's a novel. It's, Novel length, but it's actually a really, really short read, which is why I say that. It's called Flush. And she wrote it about Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Cocker Spaniel, Flush, who was a real Cocker Spaniel. They wrote about him all the time. They loved him very much. He hung around with them in England. He came with them to Italy when they moved to Italy. And Virginia Woolf just loved reading about this dog. And so what she did was write a novel about a whole sorts of stuff, but it is in the point of view of this dog flush. And it goes through like all the society in England, all societies in Italy, the Browning's relationships, like what it's like to be a dog and part of a family. And it's just, I mean, I would dare say it is one of her best works. And I think my favorite thing about it is that she wrote it right after she wrote The Waves, which I think I would too. Like I like The Waves is one of the most devastating <laughs> books. And the way that it ends is just basically like world imploding. So like, what are, what are you going to do after you've made the world implode? Oh, I guess write about a dog. So she just, she loves the way that the personality of flush comes out. And so she like flushes out, I guess flushes out, but I like flushes out because, <laughs> because of flush. Anyway, but it does a lot of work too. Like it, it seems like it's really surface level or superficial or whatever, but it's actually, it does a lot of work. So like talking about classes and people and relationships and stuff like that. So it's very good. But my favorite, I have a quote from it. Twice Flush had done his utmost to kill his enemy. Twice he had failed. And why had he failed, he asked himself, because he loved Miss Barrett. Looking up at her from under his eyebrows as she lay, severe and silent on the sofa, he knew that he must love her forever. Things are not simple, but complex. If he bit Mr. Browning, he bit her too. Hatred is not hatred. Hatred is also love. <laughs> anyway, it's very That's good. so good. So yeah, that is wonderful. <laughs> I had written down a quote by Virginia Woolf about her own cocker spaniel, Pinka. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because we're all writers with pets, and there are so many writers who write about their pets and other people's pets. And so I ended up on, you know, these like online lists of 
photos of iconic writers with their pets and things that they had written about them or written about other people's pets. And Virginia Woolf wrote this about her cocker spaniel, Pinka. This you'll call sentimental, perhaps, but then a dog somehow represents, no, I can't think of the word, the private side of life, the play side. Which is just delightful. It is. (laughs) It's delightful to think of Virginia Woolf as having gotten to have a play side. Yes, exactly. Go, Virginia. Also, Kurt Vonnegut had a dog named Pumpkin. (laughs) And Oh, and I also recommend, I I haven't read it totally, but I heard them read it at a reading, but Eileen Miles' Afterglow. Ooh, oh, yeah. yeah. It's about their dog, Rosie, who has since passed. But it's very sweet. I, I listened to it in a reading, and I really loved it. And I haven't been able to read it, but I really enjoyed what I heard. And that's it. That's it for me, too. Do you want to tell us your, your favorite animal accounts, Anne, to follow? Yes. So there are many. Some of my favorites are the sort of aggregates of people's pet videos. So like animals doing things is one of my favorites. And the <laughs> sister uh, cats doing things. You can get pretty specific with Instagram accounts. <laughs> One of my favorites, though, and I just recommend in general, is Jennifer Garner's Instagram account because she's just incredible and funny and vulnerable. And one of her Instagram series, and she has a few, is called Books with Birdie, in which she reads children's books to and with her dog, Birdie who she often like dresses up in glasses and mustaches and just talks to him like he's a person. And it's one of my favorite things. And so I just recommend that in general. Also, and I know Gail will will agree with this, Simon Sits is one of the yes. best Instagram accounts ever created. God bless Simon. Yeah. Oh. I also follow a lot of individual foxes. Oh, yeah. Um, like you can – Oh, yeah. Yeah, like if there's an animal you like, for example – I don't follow any duck Instagrams, but I'm sure there are tons, Gabrielle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you like cats, Butters Official, Butters the Cat, is one of my favorites. Um, and he's often just standing on his hind legs being cute. I mean, Instagram really is just – it's it's your oyster yeah. for pet videos. I enjoy um, Finn. Yes. Finnstagram. Yeah. No. Uh, we Rate Dogs is also one of my favorites. Because it also feature it often features um, dogs with disabilities, yes. just living their lives and defeating all odds. And often, like they'll post kickstarters or um, fundraising campaigns for the dogs, and so you can actually help the dogs. Um, and the captions are always really funny and tender. I also really like round animals, which is all just yeah, yeah. yes, chunky animals. Chonky animals, oh, yes. The dog in the swing um, flitting its tongue is one of my favorite things ever. <laughs> I also want to recommend this video that I have been watching a lot lately. So something that my husband and I do a lot is we watch videos on subreddits because it's just a platform where people post their best animal videos and they often get very specific. But there's this subreddit called party parrot that we've been watching a lot of just like funny videos of people's parrots and there's this video that I love and makes me laugh hysterically of this parrot that's inside a window looking out on this cat 
who is clearly wanting to kill this parrot. Um, but the parrot starts playing peekaboo with the cat and just goes peekaboo <laughs> and then ducks his head down. But the whole time this cat is just looking murderously at him. It's hilarious. and I just, I It's it. so great because I know like the, like the, the kind of dog trend – is like becoming more of a thing and like more people have dogs and like more, they're out more. And it's something that like my parents have commented on and like people have, you know, like real people have commented on it. And sometimes it's like humans don't talk to other humans anymore. So that's why they want animals. And I think it's just like humans are finally okay with saying that they're freaking lonely and that we are so lonely these days and that having a relationship with an animal isn't silly and we're recognizing that and i think even just like the whatever the word is the like rise of people being in like enjoying animals online and watching animal videos it's just like hey we've got a lot of stuff going on right now and there's a lot that's overwhelming but you know what's not overwhelming is like this instinctual love that we have for animals and it's okay to recognize that and i think it's a trend that i really like a lot it's like experiencing wonder in its truest form yes and, and friendships. I think that's a good note maybe for us to end on because I think we yeah. could talk about animals forever. And this is, I think, our longest episode to date already. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. But Gabrielle, I think that we leave you now to live and thrive and love and experience the world in the beautiful way you have been. And, and yeah. I should have thought of a better and at the end there. Carry on our wayward duck. I don't know. Yeah. Be a a wild Gabrielle. Yes. Carry on my wayward duck. It's a good song. (laughs) And please, Gabrielle, don't be afraid to get another animal. In fact, we encourage it. We very rarely give advice this direct, but we think there's a right thing for you to do this time. (laughs) If you don't get an animal in two weeks, we will come and find you. (laughs) Bye, friend. Bye. Bye, Gabrielle. Now That We're Friends was recorded in front of a live studio audience made up entirely of our pets. Your hosts and three new friends are Caroline Cabrera, Ann Holmes, and Gail Thompson. Our producer is Lisanne Hottentot Ramos. Our theme music is provided by Gail Thompson. Now That We're Friends is an O Miami production. If you want to ask us for advice to receive our recommendations, you can send a voice memo or written email to newfriendatomiami.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Now That We're Friends and on Twitter and Instagram at NTWF Podcast. 